PNG is already such a different culture than what we would expect, especially in the US. And my first night there, I was really tired. And this kid bursts into my room holding a bat that's probably two feet wide. And it's like, hey, welcome. Hi, my name is Andrew, and I would like to be remembered by the people that I spent my time with. This show, Giant, is the stories of those people. Today on the show, my high school roommate and good friend, Julian Lee. The first time Julian showed up on my radar was when the Chinese teacher at my high school told my friend Jesse over midwinter break to reach out to another student living on the other side of campus. He had been sleeping through his classes and missing homework, and needed a friendly nudge to spend less time playing video games and more time working on his academics. Little did she know that Jesse and I didn't spend any less time playing video games or any less time on academics, we just didn't spend any time sleeping. Midwinter break was coming up, and over three quarters of the campus would be going away, so it was a perfect opportunity for us to meet Julian in a more casual setting. We drafted an invitation to hang out over break and waited for a response. The entire vacation passed and there was no reply. A couple months later in the spring semester, we got an email back from Julian apologizing for missing our message. At that point, people were looking for potential roommates and my friend Ben was looking for someone to live with and ultimately extended an invitation to meet. They met a few times and decided shortly after that they would be comfortable living together. And they ended up living across the hall from me. The more time I spent with Julian, the more we got along. He has a great eye for design and loves working with his hands, making paper crafts and small figurines. Julian's also just a genuinely friendly and unassuming guy, and that part has never changed about him. We became close friends and roomed together our senior year. What I didn't know was that he had quite a colorful childhood and a different view on friendships because while Alexandria, Virginia was my first time moving away from my childhood home, that would be Julian's eighth time. Today, we'll be talking about his upbringing, moving from place to place every two years in his childhood, his time in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, and finally, going back to school and meeting the love of his life. What does third culture kid mean to you? And what was your experience being one? When I was growing up, ever since I was little, people would ask me, hey, where are you from? And it's a very simple question that people usually expect like a one sentence answer to. But for me, it's always been very difficult. I was born in Boston, but I grew up in a lot of different places. I only spent two months in Boston, but I'd moved to Hong Kong, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, Houston, back to Hong Kong, and even spent some time in Nigeria. A third culture kid refers to someone who was born in one place, but grew up in a different location and is from neither place because they have such a different outlook on these different places that they were born in and have connection to versus where they grew up. And why did you move around so much? 
My dad worked as a part of a national, multinational company. Every two years or so, he would be put on assignment, which means that he would usually need to pack up his stuff in one country and move to another to start a new project. And the cycle would repeat every two, three, four years. I was lucky enough to grow up in stable place. I just stayed in New York for a majority of my childhood before going to boarding school and meeting you. But it seems like every two years you're going somewhere new. What was that like? I didn't really have much of a say in it. It was more like, you got to pack up. We're moving in six months or so. My sister's three years older than me. So we were both going through the education system in different parts of our lives. And every two or three years, we would have to uproot make new friends, say goodbye to old ones, and the cycle would repeat. If I remember Julian as a nine-year-old kid in Hong Kong, and in my mind, I'm thinking, how do I say goodbye? How do I keep in touch? Do I keep in touch with these old friends? For those of you who don't know, Papua New Guinea is one of the most culturally diverse countries in the world. As of 2019, it is also the most rural, as only 13% of its citizens live in urban centers, meaning that 87% of them live in the countryside. So for contrast, 83% of the U.S. population lives in urban areas. There are 851 known languages in the country, and most of the population of more than 8 million people live in customary communities, which are as diverse as the language that exists. Finally, the country is one of the world's least explored culturally and geographically. For you, Julian, what was running through your head during the days leading up to leaving for PNG? And what was the journey like? In this previous conversation that I had with Caleb, he had just told me Kapuna Hospital, which is where his sister works at, is this hospital out in the middle of bush country. In my mind, I was thinking, bush country, what does that mean? bush country it's australian slang for out in the jungle but what does the jungle really look like especially if you're living there day to day i was trying to figure out logistics what is it going to be like the moment i land at port moresby airport which is the the international airport and how do i get from there to this hospital in the middle of the jungle the people who work at the hospital there are very friendly very detailed in figuring out logistics, but this was what it was going to entail. I would have to land in Port Moresby, spend the night at a hostel, and I would have to take a single propeller plane out to a jungle strip of land. And then after that, I would have to take a six to eight hour dinghy down to the hospital. This hospital is the only hospital within paddling distance for about 15,000 PNG locals. And the only way to get around this area is by river. And those coming to the hospital have to travel by canoe or dinghy for hours or even days to get treated. So as a volunteer, I would have to make my way to the hospital the same way. Thankfully, I didn't have to paddle, but it was still a long journey. I didn't know a lot of this going into it. People can say, hey, you're going to take a boat down to the hospital. But when I actually got there in person, it was such a different experience. For instance, I had landed in Port Moresby. I had spent one night outside of the hostel that I was supposed to stay at, and they were closed for the time. I was locked outside, and I was 
engulfed with mosquitoes. And I don't know what it was about those PNG mosquitoes. They are brutal. They will go for any type of access that they can. And I was eaten alive. So I was already bitten head to toe with mosquitoes before someone thankfully opened the door up for me and I got checked in. The next day I was taken out to the hospital. Thankfully there was another volunteer, his name is Jaden Calvert, and he was my guide to go down to the hospital. We took a plane out, we landed in the strip of jungle, and literally it wasn't an actual runway, it was bush clearing. So it wasn't paved or anything, and this plane came down, landed very smoothly, and we got down to the dinghy that was supposed to take us to the hospital. It was already getting too dark, and we spent the night at a local village. This local village is a couple of huts made from materials that are available in the area. They weren't concrete built. The roof was made from thatched dried coconut leaves. And thankfully there was a mosquito net, but it was raining, it was damp, it was moist. The bed wasn't dry. It was plastic sheet over some sort of makeshift mattress that had water all around. I got completely drenched. I wasn't able to take a shower. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is what Caleb meant. I remember that conversation. He said, if you're going to commit to this, you have to commit to it 100%. But I've never been so close to saying, hey, I'm out. But at the time, I didn't have much opportunity to say, I don't really want to do this. I want to go back home. How are they going to take me back home? How, are they going to fly me back? Charter plane happens only like one time a week. <laughs> so it's not like I had much of a choice. I had to keep going forwards. So I was the most uncomfortable I had ever been in my life in that hut. The next day we continued, we went on the dinghy. This river must have been 200 meters wide. And it apparently the thing around that area was the crocodiles. Locals told me that there were crocodiles attack for people bathing in the river. And this river isn't the type of clear river. It was silt everywhere. It was muddy and you couldn't see even six inches below the surface of the water. So we were on this dinghy for six hours or so. And we come across this opening at this hospital that you couldn't even tell was a hospital. It was a small patch of land. It was an island and we disembarked onto this metal rusted pier. And this was gonna be my home for the foreseeable future. Where, was there a building? It was a pier that led to an open area that had a lot of different buildings. There was a hospital ward, of course. There was a community of people, like around 100 people who lived there, who weren't at the hospital. And there were the dormitories for the community workers and that was gonna be my home. I think it's fair to say, Julian, that of all the places that you hopped around, whether it was Virginia, Saudi Arabia, Hong Kong, Boston, most of these places are urban centers and cities. And this is probably your first time living in a place that has no city infrastructure. What do you think the biggest contrasts were in between now living in this place versus any other place that you've ever lived before? The biggest thing that stood out was how people viewed the concept of time over there. 
growing up in these urban places, like time is just something to abide by. It is law. If a train comes and says that it's going to come at 6.30, it's going to come 6.30. And if it deviates one minute left or right, then you're going to be quite frustrated by the inconvenience. However, life in PNG is almost the complete opposite. You don't know when things are going to happen. The weather takes a lot of precedent. The biggest example of this was the charter flights that went in and out of Port Moresby to the bush country. And you wouldn't know when these planes would be flying in. You would only find out the day of. And it really had to do with the weather, if the pilot was feeling up for it. And on the surface, this was inconvenient on, on time and punctuality. Especially when you think about us growing up in urban centers, punctuality is almost a virtue. Like you are respected for showing up on time and following the schedule. But when you're living out there, things are less time sensitive, but at the same time, they're trying to do things quote unquote at the right time. You might have a flight scheduled at 3.30 PM, but it's pouring rain and it's really cloudy. That's a terrible time to fly. It's more of a quote unquote right time if the clouds are clear, the weather's all clear, the pilot's well rested and ready to fly, right? So it's, it is a fundamental shift of one minute is one minute. I have to do these things for this amount of time versus spending an appropriate amount of time. So what did, what did the schedule look like there, if there was one? So our sense of time was dictated by things that were happening at the hospital. For instance, the generator turned on at 6.30. Apart from that, you wouldn't be, there wasn't gonna be any um, electricity unless you were working at the hospital. Supplies came down from the river only every month. We needed to be aware of our resources the sense of time would be dictated by things that happened at the hospital. It wasn't one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. You just kind of lived life differently there. It's an inversion of how we would do things over here in the US where time dictates when the event should happen. Let's say we're eating dinner at 7 p.m. versus if the food's not ready yet, then you can't be eating at seven. But once the meal is ready is when it's time to eat, period. Exactly. I mean, that, that's how life was. What was it like you're, engaging so much in wilderness? You're surrounded by the green. You're surrounded by fresh air. It's a different pace of life. And even the food that we ate was very different too. It was mostly derived from what was available around us. Those were pumpkin. Those were squashes. Those were bananas a lot of bananas and coconut i remember helping out with preparation for dinner a lot of the time we would crack open a dried coconut and scrape off all the white parts that were hard and make a type of coconut milk from that that you would cook your greens in and it would be very flavorful and fragrant there wasn't gasoline there wasn't electric stoves what do you do you burn things it's so many different parts of life that you would actually be doing things and you would have an expectation of hey i need to charge my phone where's an outlet into it's finally the generators finally turned on i can charge my phone life was dictated by the events going on around us so another difference in life and png was this whole idea of money out in the jungle in this hospital, there is a convenience store that takes in kina. That's the currency that people in PNG use in the city. 
but outside of that what do you use money for it was a way to get goods and services yes you would pay for food at the markets with money but there was this whole idea of bartering that people don't do in in western society like for instance that hut that i stayed at the first night i had brought tea and candy and i had given these out they liked it so much they gave sugarcane fresh sugarcane that was so refreshing and sweet but it was this whole idea of giving and taking that was very different out there you didn't have to pay money and expect something in return it was more like hey i want to share this with you because i've had it before and as a token of appreciation they returned something back it wasn't a transaction in the formal sense of the word when do you feel like you were finally if anything comfortable in png where you felt like the rhythm of life all of a sudden synced up with your style and that kind of shock value culture shock faded away i think the having the idea of inconvenience disappear from my mind it was an internal change where when i was comfortable talking to people and when i was comfortable picking up parts of pidgin english the language that they spoke there it was when these little things came out and really made me feel comfortable enough to sit back and and feel at peace i think that aspect of being peaceful in this otherworldly environment that's the part that i knew i'm okay everything's going to be okay this whole idea of, of me being a college dropout just it didn't influence as much people there don't go to college the same way that people in the US do the expectations and my personal view of those expectations and where do i fit within it going back to the way that i grew up i would always ask myself how would i fit within these different societies in these different cultures how do i fit in the moment in png where i didn't have to think about that the moment i kind of let go and stop thinking about that that was when i was at the most peaceful it almost sounds like when you find that peace when you find that inner bliss you don't have to worry about mental configurations or expectations these ideas of framing you in a certain light because society as a whole wants to put you in that box because it's easier for them to understand who you are whereas if you're living out there where there is no expectation of you right you are just a part of the community you are present with the land you are present with the wildlife and there's nothing else that that is you just living in the very moment you're not really worried about your past or your future you're just worrying about what's in front of me right now it's a complete paradigm shift from the fast-paced lifestyle of a city where you're constantly thinking about what's going to happen next what's happening in my future what is happening in other people's futures and running all this mental calculus of how should my life be playing out right now versus actually living your life in real time in the current moment sounds like you you actually finally got to reach that and the follow up i have is how in, how long did you end up staying in png and what was your last week like there so i spent a total of 6 months in papua new guinea and at the end of it i felt i was ready to come back and and start school again I had applied and got accepted to Kansas State University. I realized I was ready to come back. 
my last couple of weeks was really soaking in as much of the environment that I wanted to kind of bring back with me because I knew I was going to miss this area. It was such a unique experience, such a positive experience for me, especially when I was, I dropped out and I didn't know what I was going to do. My last week was very special. I had tried and failed to hatch a cassowary egg. A cassowary is a relative of an emu. So think giant prehistoric bird. It looks like a dinosaur. I was trying to hatch a, an egg by having a hen sit on it. It didn't work. The hen sat on it, but it was just, it wasn't hatching. There was a lady who was given birth and she was anemic. So she needed blood. How does blood giving work? You get it as fresh as you can. You can't store it. There's no electricity to store and keep these um, packs of blood cool. The lady who had started the hospital, a lady called Lynn Calvert, she was um, in her 80s and she was very sharp and she drew my blood because the nurses at the time kept jabbing at me. How did you, how did you agree to this? Or what was the problem? We were like, okay, we're going to take your blood now? We need blood. They were telling people around, we need blood. And then I, I just volunteered and surrendered myself in my arm. That was your first time donating blood? Yeah, it was. And then what else happened? Another thing that happened, we weren't chasing chicken. How do you get meat? It has to be fresh. And we had a lot of chickens in the community. And the only way to get them was to make an event out of it. And these children were all running around trying to chase down these chickens and ended up beheading them with machetes. There are so many things that I look back and wonder, oh, how was this? Like, how did I go through it? How did I say this was okay? But it's just something that people do. It's how they live their lives. And who was I to impart a social judgment on them? This is good or this is bad. This is just how they did things. I remember that the first time we reconnected in 2016, you came back. We were hanging out in New York. We're sitting at this cafe. And you were telling me about one of the last nights that you spent in PNG where you're sitting on a boat and looking up at the stars. And can you tell me a little bit more about that? I remember that night. I think it was even my last night there. We went out on a dinghy and we were going up the river. It was a soft motor. So you couldn't really hear anything except the motor cutting forwards. And there was no light. It was complete pitch darkness out on the river. Above us, you could see the Milky Way. It was so clear. The stars were out, shining down on us, and it was so quiet. On the riverbanks to our left and right, there were these trees that attracted these light bugs to them, and they were pulsing all at the same time. You could see out in the distance trees that were almost breathing with how these insects were pulsing their lights. We went underneath a couple of them and it was just so incredible how we would shake some of the branches and then the whole tree would come alive and all these bugs would go flying, start pulsing and come back to the tree. Yeah, it sounds magical. And what were the takeaways and revelations when you left PNG? It's interesting because I think that after I came back to the U.S. and after I graduated from college, this is a 
it's almost something that I feel like I lost. And I lost this sense of everything's going to be okay. The whole environment, the whole community, and this idea that you're out in the middle of nowhere, that time doesn't wait for you, it's just there. This sense of peace that came from accepting and really living it in Papua New Guinea at Kapuna Hospital is, is nothing that you'll ever experience outside of that environment. And the fact that you are now living a life and experiencing a life that isn't anything like what you've known or experienced or expected. And that really fundamentally shifts the way that you can see your life now that you've come back. How did you make the decision to go back to school and why did you pick Kansas State University? What was different between your first time going to university and this time? I initially chose Kansas State University because it was a program in which I could complete a master's degree in the shortest period of time in five years. And it was nationally ranked as a public institution. The application process was very straightforward. For someone in my position who had dropped out and had the transcripts saying that I dropped out, the process and talking to people at this program, they were very understanding and they were able to accept me as a new student. What came out of it, my attitude was so different because I felt I was ready. I was ready to focus and I was ready for my next phase in life. While you were studying at KSU, you met a girl named Min in your architecture studio. How did you two become friends and what was your first impression of her? In my fourth year of studying, I ended up in the same class as this girl that I had seen walking down the hallways. And we had spoken before, but hadn't had prolonged time together. And now that we were in the same classes, I became really interested because it seemed like she had the same love of traveling and the same love of food. So there was a group of international students who were also in the class that I had struck up a conversation and friendship with. And we ended up inviting each other to go out for dinner. And Min was in this group and we just kind of struck it off. We kept having meals together just because we were bonding over good Asian food. And this Asian food, you had to drive 45 minutes to go to this small city, Junction City, to get good Korean barbecue. Before you knew it, we were just having dinners exclusively. What was your first impression of her? Once we started having dinners and more conversations with each other, I realized that we had a lot in common, not only the love of food, but also the love of traveling. Her experiences in different cultures was very similar to mine. We don't like to go traveling just for the sake of seeing new sites and eating good food, but it was her experiences in these different places that really struck out to me. For instance, she wouldn't know the, the language and she would go to Hong Kong or Vietnam and she would have a deep emotional connection with some of the people that she struck friendships with not even knowing the language. 
there are a lot of these instances that kind of came up in our conversations that made me think, hey, this, this girl's really special. And that aspect of her having such a warm heart, especially to people that she doesn't even know how to communicate with, that really struck out to me that, hey, there's something there. And how did you guys end up dating? I asked her out on the couch of one of her friend's places, but it never really clicked for her that we were going out. In my mind, that's when we started going out, but she apparently refused, but still we were having dates together. I guess over time, we just realized that we were exclusive. We had that conversation and we pretty much said, are we dating? Yeah. You guys just love being in each other's company. Over time, you realize, okay, well, I only like hanging out with you and you only like hanging out with me. So we're Mm -hmm. exclusive and we're going to make this into a serious relationship. Mm -hmm. And for you, is this your first serious relationship? Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. And for me, I remember hearing about her in your periphery. And then all of a sudden you give me a call one day and you're planning on marrying her in 2019. And I was super surprised. What was your relationship like in the beginning? And when did you come to realize that she was the person that you wanted to marry? I know that it was a shock for you and our friends from boarding school, especially since a lot of our friends were living in urban areas where I was kind of spending my time out in Kansas State. I never thought that I would find myself in this situation when I first went there. And so it's just funny how things ended up. To get back to your question, what really ended up in making my mind clear that this was the woman I wanted to marry was the fact that during the course of our relationship, we would be constantly building each other up and realizing that this wasn't a relationship that I was willing to let go. We ended up doing long distance for a majority of our relationship. We had spent one semester in the same classes, but the next semester she had been doing an internship down in Dallas. I was going back and forth where she was coming up to Kansas City. And it was during this time that we realized there's something really here. And especially if we're looking longer term, what are we looking for? What are we aiming for? And for me, I wasn't interested in meeting anyone else or building up this sort of relationship with anyone else. It was just it for me. It was more of a gradual feeling that I wasn't interested in continuing on looking. I'm lucky enough to also be in a relationship that I'm really happy with. And I find that I end up becoming a little bit more like my partner and my partner ends up becoming a little bit more like me. In what ways do you think that you have become more like her and in what ways do you think that she's become a little bit more like you? Well, that's a really good piece of insight because yeah, that's kind of something that I, I realize the more I'm spending time with her and the more I'm interacting with family and friends, there are certain aspects that she's imparted on me. This aspect of grit, of sticking out. It's strange because whenever I talk with my parents now, they often remark how I'm a very different person, especially since I had dropped out of college and even though I came back and I graduated, they make these remarks and it's really through this external feedback that I realize I'm becoming more mature and I'm thinking about certain things that I would never really thought about before. 
I'm thinking of now. And that's one, one of the ways that she's imparted on me is that in these conversations that come up, we're trying to continue our lives together and build up this life that we want to share. Totally agree. You guys are not the same person, right? But you yes. found a way to live harmoniously. There are certain aspects that shine about you, Julian, certain aspects that shine about men. And the fact that you two can coexist and make something even more through a relationship and not just individually living your lives is really special. I do completely agree with your point that we're not the same people and we're not looking for someone who is exactly like us. One thing that I had to learn was I cannot force her and she cannot force me to be a certain type of person. And if there is change that needs to happen in the relationship, it has to come from within yourself. Otherwise, it becomes a point of contention when things grate against each other of having to be someone that you're not. So for instance, when I was graduating from school and since she was one year under me, I needed to think for both of us, this was before we had gotten married. If we were going to have a life together, where are we going to end up? And we had a lot of debate and a lot of anguish because we weren't sure where we were going to end up and come to an understanding individually that if we really wanted to make this work, we needed to set a priority and aim for that. It's kind of an interesting analogy that popped into my head where it feels like you're both on a plane where both of you can't be the pilot at the same time. And sometimes you have to compromise. You might want to just drive the entire relationship one way because you think it's the right thing to do. And if you don't talk about it with your partner and communicate clearly what your goals are and why you're doing what you're doing, then they might try and wrest control from you and try to fly in their direction. The ability to balance the two and understand the motivations and drives behind not just each individual, but like, what do you guys want to make out of this? What is the goal for this relationship as a whole? Not just what do I want and what does she want? Like synthesize the two together to make something that you both can be happy with. Exactly. Relationships are difficult because life by yourself is already so complex. But especially when you introduce another person and if this person means so much to you that you don't want to live without them, if your relationship isn't a priority, then it's not going to continue growing. It seems like you two took a lot of time and thought and care into how you wanted to build your relationships and how you wanted to proceed with the next steps. In American culture, the intermediary step in between a casual relationship and a marriage is a proposal. And how did you go about that process? This whole process of proposing to men, it wasn't just, oh, let me just ask her for her hand in marriage. We made a point the Christmas before to see each other's parents. My parents were in Singapore. Men's mom at the time was in Korea. We kind of made this trip to see each other's parents and get their approval. Little did my dad know at the time that his first time meeting this girl was actually my idea of his approval of her. I had proposed to her three months before the wedding was scheduled. What ended up happening was I had gone down for spring break to Dallas. I drove down there with all the things prepared. I had the rings with me. I had a homemade table that we had built out of butcher block and had these planned to propose to her in the Dallas Arboretum. And I popped the question and she said yes. 
I remember you telling me that you actually made the ring box yourself. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So as part of this proposal process, I had built this box that was meant to hold the ring using the workshop that we had at school. We built furniture there. We built things out of wood and metal. And I wanted to use my skills to design something that was going to go into this proposal. I actually recorded a video of that process. If you want to check it out, there will be a link in the show notes. You propose to her. She says, yes, thank God. All of a sudden, you are tasked with planning for a wedding. For those of us who aren't married, what's the hardest part about planning for a wedding? Oh, wow. Where to even begin? It's not only wrangling everything together. We only had three months before the wedding was going to take place. And we pretty much had to cram this whole process of planning for a wedding that is essentially orchestrating an event with whatever resources you have. It's a lot of figuring out venues, figuring out food and catering, down to even designing the program, getting the people ready to come in such short notice. It was such a rush when we were doing it. One thing I remember was we just need to get it done. We needed to invite everyone as soon as possible so that they had enough time to make plans. The wedding venue that we had chosen was out in the middle of Arkansas. There was this chapel designed by a famous architect out in the middle of the woods in a clearing that was very special and unique and looked phenomenal in pictures. It was a good homage to our architecture backgrounds and everything had to revolve around that remote location in the middle of Arkansas you're almost overwhelmed by the number of things that you need to account and plan for. It's not only the people that you're inviting, you also have to think about the reception. Who are you sitting together that would make sense to sit them together? How do you imagine their personalities would mesh so that they would have great dinner conversations at the same tables? Even though our wedding was relatively small, it was like 40 people or so, it was still very difficult to get everything together. You have to think about the sequence of events. You have to think about what is going to be included within the wedding because you almost have to design how that procession goes, the what music goes in, what readings go in. A lot of trust has to be put in everyone else who's helping as much as they can. We didn't have a wedding planner. It was a lot of homegrown activities. Like for instance, the flowers were done by my family who came and they were all from Costco. We were trying to keep it on a budget and it turned out amazing for the amount of money that really went into it. But we were really happy with how it turned out. I've been to a wedding in India, which had almost 400 people. I went to my cousin's wedding. And what I realized after going to all these different weddings, including yours, is that the wedding is not about the couple. The couple doesn't have a great time during the wedding, which is the sad part because they spend so much time with dedication and thought about every little aspect of the wedding, which has to go a certain way. The wedding is more for the guests rather than the actual married couple. I really felt that in terms of the accommodations, how quickly you guys planned a wedding. Three months is almost unheard of. But it is nice knowing that your family had a part in this ceremony and this really special day. And I'm just happy that you had a good time and that you have such a memorable experience with your loved ones and, of course, with Min. 
Yeah, I completely agree. It's almost like everyone coming together to help out as much as possible and having almost like a, a family team to develop this project together. It's a process and the wedding itself isn't everything. It's events that lead up to it. And that's what made it so memorable for us too, was the fact that everyone who came together, came together out of love and out of a deep respect more than we could have ever imagined. What was the most memorable part of your wedding that you actually got to enjoy? What ended up happening was after these three months of intense planning and preparation, one thing that we couldn't control was the weather. I remember when we were driving down from Kansas to Arkansas, there was this weather report that a huge storm was coming and it started chucking down rain like none other, enough to the point that people had to change up their travel accommodations to get to Arkansas. We were so worried about this that we were trying to figure out what's gonna happen the day of the wedding. The day that the wedding took place, it was still raining in the morning. It was still raining and I realized that it was the exact moment that Min started walking down the aisle that the clouds parted and there were light streaming down into the chapel and everything parted and became wonderfully scenic and beautiful. Yeah, it was super beautiful chapel. I had just come from a huge music festival in Las Vegas and the wedding was the next day. I flew in, our mutual friend Ben was supposed to pick me up and as I'm landing in Arkansas, he calls me and says, by the way, I can't pick you up because there's a tornado warning and you're gonna have to stay at this hotel and said, I'll come pick you up first thing tomorrow and then we'll make the wedding. I get picked up, we pass a sign that says population 3000. And I was like, wow, that's small. Spend the night in the hotel. And the next day, Ben and I get up, we go to the chapel, we finally see you. This was the first time that we had met Min. She looked beautiful. The ceremony was wonderful. I love the fact that it was such a small and intimate group of people. There's people in your family that I've met before and I hadn't seen since high school. Your aunt again, your parents, your sister, and meeting parts of Min's family. I consider you like a brother and meeting her was like meeting a new part of the family. And that was really awesome to see. Yeah, it was so wonderful to see these disparate parts of our relationships from Min's side and from my side and come together. That was such a special part that really made our wedding what it was. It's the people who came and celebrated this special occasion with us. It's really cool to think about from your perspective. You're literally seeing family friends, you're seeing childhood friends, you're seeing high school friends, you're seeing college friends. It's almost like this whole storybook of people, this whole timeline of relationships that you had here to share this with you. And that was really cool. Yes, exactly. Now that you've been married, how long have you been married? For a year? How long have you been married? A year and a half now. Now that you've been married for a year and a half, how do you think your parents' married life has influenced yours and Min's? That's a very interesting question because we are a product of our environments and the people that we see growing up, mainly our parents, often influence what we do in the future, whether we are cognizant of it or not. And one of the things that really came into play with this relationship with Min and I was the very contrasting backgrounds that we both came from. My parents, they had met in college and they got married afterwards and started this family together. It's only my sister and I. 
but Min's family had a different background of having divorced parents, which highly influenced her relationships as well as my background influenced my relationships too with friends, with men. And one of the things that we really needed to come to terms with was how we wanted to conduct our family when we became married to each other. Some of the things that I've been doing similarly to my parents is this whole idea of family, of this bond that we have, of making a point to connect with people and to spend time with people that we care about. That's been something that I have brought from my side, but I know that from Min's side, it's a very different sort of view. And I have to keep reminding myself that some of the aspects, as positively as I experience them, that she's gonna view it in a certain way based on her backgrounds too. For instance, I might really enjoy having time with family members during breaks and spending time with his relatives make my holidays very fulfilling, but she comes from a place where that doesn't happen. And as much as I painted on a positive picture, I can't just expect her to go along with it. Otherwise, it would create feelings of resentment towards these positive experiences that I think of them as. There really needs to be this open communication between us that makes sure that we're on the same page and we're not leaving the other person behind. To finally wrap it up, when you were younger, people would ask you pretty often where you're from. And that's, as you've mentioned, a difficult question to answer because the idea of a home was ambiguous for you. You spent so much time moving around constantly. Now that you're married, you have the opportunity to build a home with your wife. What did a home mean to you before getting married? And what does it mean to you now? Yes, that's a, that's a really good question. I realized that before I got married and what we had talked about previously, the home was such an abstract topic and it was so difficult to answer because it really had to do with what my emotional connection to a physical country or a physical place that I grew up in. But now the idea of a home is so different because I understand that right now I'm in Denver, Colorado. But it's not exactly the location that Min and I want to stay in for the long term. But this idea of a home is what we are both looking forwards to. As architects of our own lives, this whole idea of building a life together, that's what grounds what my idea of a home is now. We are both working towards a future that we want to achieve. It was quite the adventure hearing about Julian's journey of self-discovery and identity through his nomad third culture childhood, then through the jungles of Papua New Guinea, and now his married life in Colorado. I've known Julian for a decade at this point, and I was still hearing new stories from him for the first time. It's part of the reason that I love doing this show so much. The people in my life have lived such rich lives, and. Each time I sit down to talk with them, I gain a new perspective and learn something new. My question to Julian on the idea of home got me thinking about what I think a home is. To me, it's a place where you feel safe and feel like you belong, and 
I'm so happy that a friend that I consider my brother has found a home for himself with Min. I want to thank Julian again for sharing his stories, and to you, the listener, for your time. This has been Giant. I'll see you next time. Thank you.